Hi, Anne, and hello to our Faith and Reason 360 listening audience. It's a new year, and we hope everyone is off to a good start, or at least headed in that direction. (laughs) Um, Let me remind everyone that you're listening to Faith and Reason 360. Uh, Support for Faith and Reason 360 comes from the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, the Joe B. and Louise P. Cook Foundation, promoting critical thinking about faith and life. And our support also comes from listeners like you. I'm Deborah Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. Anne, oh my God. A new year indeed. <laughs> a new year and we have a new oh, yes, I baby am. on the way. I have about 10 days left until oh. my expiration date on this pregnancy. So we are <laughs> very large sitting here back in this chair and just uh, waiting for this baby to make an appearance in the world. Well, so I have the to last t- time you'll hear from me until I'm a mother of two. Oh, <laughs> well, I had to tell you, I, I was a little bit anxious uh, earlier thinking, oh my goodness, Aunt's going to call me any moment now and tell me she's in the hospital, she's in labor. If only. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, let's tell tell our guests what we're going to do. We will be revisiting today uh, from a lecture series that that Deborah will talk a little bit more about, um, but we're going to be revisiting some of the words that Faith and Reason had a chance to hear from uh, Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Dr. Brueggemann is an American Protestant Old Testament scholar and theologian who is widely considered one of the most influential Old Testament scholars of the last several decades. He's extremely important in modern progressive Christianity, and his work often focuses on the Hebrew prophetic tradition and socio-political imagination of the church. He argues that the church must provide a counter-narrative to the dominant forces of consumerism, militarism, and nationalism. And I uh, when Debo suggested this particular lecture to revisit from 14 years ago, yes. now um, I was particularly excited. Dr. Brueggemann's work has been um, extremely influential in my own studies. Uh, his his book, The Prophetic Imagination, was the number one primary source of both inspiration and information for my own master's thesis on how the artist functions as contemporary prophet in a, in a world uh, that has uh, such a thing as secularism, whereas the ancient world didn't have that notion. Um, and with Theodicy, the the instrumental, the the musical group that I work with, um, that does our intro and outro music, um, that I am I'm very privileged to be the vocalist for. Uh, we we travel around a lot, and Andy and I, Andy is our pianist, and he's an Episcopal priest. Um, Andy and I often will deliver. Uh, sort of joint sermons where we'll maybe stand in two different places in the church. And our favorite is when we get to do an evensong service uh, for a community that has has asked us to come visit them and do music and, and, and services for them. And we will use Dr. Brueggemann's work, uh, Sabbath as Resistance, that came out a few years ago um, to talk about the importance of rest, um, not just as uh, a self-preservation tactic, which obviously is important, but as an act of, of social and political resistance um, to a very, very toxic culture and using Evensong as a, as a, a symbol of that. And so uh, Brueggemann's work has been academically influential for me as well as professionally and spiritually uh, in recent years has been very central. And so I'm excited to, to revisit uh, this lecture and think about what he was 
saying and see those sort of seeds of germination for the work that he uh, came to write that has been so central for me. Well, and you mentioned that we did do this Faith and Reason seminar in 2004, which is yes. 14 years ago. But yes, I was 18 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not going to say how old I was. <laughs> Much older. Um, but I, I'm just actually stunned mm-hmm. uh, how relevant oh this goodness. lecture of 14 years ago yes. is today. Mm-hmm. I would have never anticipated that this would be so relevant and so significant. So we are very fortunate at Faith and Reason to have this. So again, in 2004, Faith and Reason produced a seminar. The seminar was called The Prospect of a World Community of Religions. It was um, produced at uh, Millsaps College here in Jackson, Mississippi. Featured guests included Dr. Arvid Sharma, who was associate professor in the Faculty of Religious Studies at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, where he is now the Burks Professor of Comparative Religion. Also included in this seminar were Sister Joan Chittister, Dr. John Dominic Crossan, Dr. Tex Sample, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, uh, the late Phyllis Tickle, and Dr. Walter Brueggemann. If I could go back in time and be there for that particular seminar, that would be great. (laughs) What an amazing lineup. (laughs) It was just breathtaking. It was just amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So today we're going to focus on Dr. Brueggemann's comments from this seminar's fourth presentation, which was titled, What About America? Issues of Culture and Politics. In this seminar, Dr. Brueggemann boldly states that, quote, the founders of the United States of America did not think they were making a Christian nation, end quote. Let's listen to his own words in the seminar itself. The question is, America has traditionally been understood as a Christian nation. The question is, understood by whom? Uh, I take it this company by and large would say not by us because we prize the First Amendment. So I have uh, three things to say. First, that uh, Robert Bella in uh, many of his books has said that uh, the idea of uh, the United States has two sources. One is Christian out of biblical faith and one is the Greek classical tradition of philosophy and that Greek philosophic tradition that lied behind the great deists who put our documents together protects the United States from being a Christian nation. So it is uh, incredibly simplistic and reductionistic to think that any of the founding people thought uh, that they were making a Christian nation. Uh, The second thing I have to say, and and I think uh, this has to be said from the beginning, but it certainly has to be said now with all of the uh, incredible social diversity and pluralism, uh, religious pluralism and so on of the United States, uh, that the United States is not a Christian nation, it is a secular democracy. And at the most, the business of the church in the United States is to be a sub-community in a secular democracy along with many other sub-communities 
who are to bring vision and passion and energy and courage to the secular democracy. I want to begin by actually reading the First Amendment because I'm not sure that it, too many people have read it lately. So, <laughs> at least I haven't. So I did happen to go back and reread it. So I want to re read the First Amendment verbatim. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Hmm. Okay. I'm always struck. They were such good writers. <laughs> beyond, yeah. beyond just the, the incredible ideas behind it, such good writers. I love, um, you know, I'm, I'm married to sort of a constitutional scholar, a political theorist, and um, so I probably hear more about uh, the First Amendment than most uh, around the dinner table. Um but I love what Brueggemann introduces at the very beginning of his comments um, as he's considering this amendment and he's considering what it means, the phrase Christian nation. Um, he says, America has been understood to be a Christian nation. And he raises the question, understood by whom? Mm. And I think that that is something that he was picking up on then that is even more prevalent now, as we are just beginning to learn to voices, to, to listen to voices that are not the the naturally privileged, not naturally, the sociologically privileged voices mm -hmm. in our in our national dialogue. So, so in this question of understood by whom, who is this that's saying that, that the United States is a Christian nation? And who was it that was saying that then? I don't hear the the founders of this country saying that in the constitution no. mm. i in fact hear them saying the opposite of that absolutely <laughs> um mm. and there are plenty of ways to interpret to interpret the constitution of course there are whole fields of study and that's what what it is to go into law mm -hmm. but um it's a really complicated question because at that time and at this time there are a lot of privileged voices among christians that are saying well america is a christian nation but their voices aren't the only American voices and their voices aren't the only voices that matters. And even in as a Christian in the United States, I would argue that the United States is not supposed to be a Christian nation and it, it never was. And it cheapens not just the country, but what I understand to be the radical act of following Jesus to claim that you can make a country's government Christian. Well, let's look back at the history a little bit. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for colonization in America was to get away right. from state religion. Many in England, what, in the 16th century? Mm -hmm. After all, they had been through. Oh, yes. You know, the, the, the religious thing. They, they saw that the crown mm -hmm. and the Anglican church were one and the same. Mm -hmm. So there was a deliberate decision mm -hmm. made by the founding forebearers that there be a clear distinction in the new Absolutely. America in what a in what is governess and what is the church or, or churches. So no one is to be compelled to belong to any one religion mm -hmm. in order to be an American. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, my my alarm bells go off in a lot of different ways as I think back on that. And that, you know, Brueggemann says himself that, in fact, the Constitution protect his quote is it protects the U.S. from being a Christian nation. Um, so he's making the same argument I am, as well as the fact that, you know, it's hard for me to, as much as I revere this language and this beautiful sentiment behind the founding of our democracy, these were not flawless people. These were not perfect people. And there were also already people with religions and beliefs who yes. lived in this country. Yeah. And so I don't know that even if they did intend to make this a Christian nation, that we want to hold them up as the pinnacle of humanity to be emulated today. Um, well, it's very clear that they did not intend for the United States to be a Christian right. nation. They they looked at the experience in England and in mm-hmm. Europe. Those were examples of the way in which religion and politics, and you mix those, right. they cause great social problems. Absolutely. I mean, the battles between whether the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church was going to be the one with the crown, people people died every day in that battle, and, and they knew that. They knew that dying in the name of religion was not what they wanted to establish. And, you know, it brings me to, uh, it's an idea that I've talked about before in interfaith panels. I mean, and Brueggemann says uh, that this is not a Christian nation, but a secular democracy. And the church is one sub-community among other sub-communities in this secular democracy. And and, and I could pick that apart for hours, but yes. um, <laughs> there's so yeah. much in that. But I'm really, um, something I talk about a lot in interfaith and pluralist contexts is that we have historically in the modern world um, and a little bit in the pre-modern world understood religion to be a sport, a team sport where we pick a team and our, if our team is winning, the other teams are losing. And our goal is to have Christianity, our goal allegedly as the church, should be for Christianity to win the prize, making this a Christian nation, making us the triumphant winners, us the holders of the crown. And in part, it's because religion did function that way in medieval Europe. And and it was a team sport and there were the crusades. And, and that's just not something I want to emulate. I think that religion as a sport is not a great metaphor a metaphor that works a lot better for me is is religion as a language. So it's good. Mm-hmm. If I think of Christianity as the spiritual language that I speak, the system of symbols and the set of stories and narratives that that bring me closer to God and allow me to spiritually communicate with God and with my neighbors, Christianity is valuable. But just like with English, I don't speak English because it's superior to other languages. I speak it because it's already the language I'm fluent in and therefore the one I'm best able to communicate in. That said, there are whole concepts that English cannot communicate, that other languages can communicate more effectively. And I only benefit intellectually and socially from learning those other languages and having access to those new ideas. I would argue the same for religion. While Christianity is my spiritual language, it's not the right language. It's not, I don't want it to win. I want it to benefit from being in, in relationship and in conversation with these other sub-communities, as Brueggemann calls them, because we as a democracy are so much stronger the broader and wider our spirituality that embraces each individual resident in this country. Yes, and as a democracy, it's very clear, and I think our forebearers certainly made it very clear, that there has to be a clear distinction between how we govern ourselves and Mm -hmm. what 
religious organizations we identify with. So Mm -hmm. there are different languages that we speak through our religious orientations. Absolutely. So let's go go ahead and um, listen to a little bit more of uh, Dr. Brueggemann's comments on uh, secular democracy. Great. It seems to me that the most important work about uh, maintaining a secular democracy that the church has a stake in is to enhance the institutions that keep our infrastructure healthy. And I could think of five such institutions. Uh, An independent judiciary, and my judgment is that we are at the edge of not having an independent judiciary. A free press, we clearly are very close not to having a free press with embedded journalists in Donald Rumsfeld's capers. Public schools, and uh, you may know now that Neil Bortz refers to public schools as government schools. Uh, So I think uh, that public schools historically have been crucial to maintaining a secular, secular democracy, and we have a stake in that. Fourth, to maintain checks and balances between agencies of government. And fifth, I said this uh, in an ethics class uh, earlier today, the church has a stake in helping people see that paying taxes is a democratic virtue. And I suspect of all of our theological traditions, Calvinism is the one that has understood that paying taxes is a democratic virtue. What has happened now to the, to the whole business of taxes, without ever thinking about income and outgo, it is as though taxes in principle are a bad thing, and as though we can have a democratic infrastructure without anybody having to pay for it. It is the task of the church, it seems to me, to tell the truth about these sorts of matters. Okay, Ann. Hmm. Let's take these one at a time. It won't be very long with them. We'll be as brief as we can, but Hmm. it's important for us to address each one of these. So Hmm. let's start off with independent judiciary system. Um, Go ahead. It's real fascinating to to just hear him rattle these off, you know, 14 years ago. And he, you know, talking about Donald Rumsfeld and he's talking about these situations. And I, and now we look back on this oh. <laughs> sort of glory days when things <laughs> seemed even easier. Um, now is such a charged moment for every one of these bullets, um, including the the independent judiciary. And, you know, as he said, it seemed like it was on the brink then. Uh, it, it's I can't speak as eloquently on the judiciary as I can maybe some of these others, but um, it's a, a terrifying prospect to have... Um, the way that our government is structured to have certain people in place who name judges and have those people be so openly, intentionally biased. Well, it is pure and simple. It is clear that mm-hmm. a, that it's a violation of constitutional law mm-hmm. and governance for the executive mm-hmm. branch to influence the mm-hmm. judiciary branch. And there there has to be, mm-hmm. must be a separation of power for the system to work. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think back to, you know, uh, the, the lame duck presidency of Barack Obama and the, the nomination of Merrick Garland and just how, how 
the how Congress also meddled in that separation of powers and prohibited our sitting president from being able to seat a Supreme Court justice. And if this is what's happening on the super visible level, I mean, there are all of these appellate judges and local, I mean, all over the place. Who knows how we're getting, how we're not living up to those ideals that were originally outlined. Well, we're really in a challenge. I mean, we're, it's a, it's a moment of history, whether or not we'll, we'll govern ourselves by constitutional law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So will, will the rule of law be sustained is, mm-hmm. is really what we're facing. And it's part of the mm-hmm. church's responsibility. Yeah, I mean, that's what he says, is that the church, um, and, I, and I would argue not just the church, but all religions and religious institutions um, and independent, right, thank you. independent yes. faithful people um, to hold our government accountable. That's what a democracy is. I might operate from a standpoint of Christianity and the church and therefore use my own faith to motivate <clears throat> my involvement in the democratic process. Um, but all of us, all of us are, I believe, compelled to do that. I think it's a real misnomer. Um, and this is a bias of mine, and this is an intellectual standpoint that I could totally be debated and has been <laughs> by mm-hmm. many, many mm-hmm. people more educated than myself. I don't see being a secular democracy as being a place that is religion neutral, but as right. being a place that is religion open. Excellent. So everyone should be able to bring their religious beliefs to the table and and authentically live into who they are throughout these debates um, and, and have them come to bear on the way I operate in democracy, but I cannot, again, establish laws according to my religion. Well, and it has to be representative of all all exactly. people. Exactly. So you can bring your religious values to a table, mm-hmm. but you also have to keep in mind that you have to right. honor and respect the dignity of all human beings. Right. right. And I would argue that it's impossible, and this is where I get into controversial territory with a lot of my fellow progressives, but I would actually argue that it's impossible to check our, our religious beliefs at the door. And that in pretending to do, do so, we do a disservice to the democratic process because we're pretending that we're not operating from faith-based motives when, when we really are. Well, as Christians in our baptismal vows, right. we <laughs> actually say in those right. vows, will you honor and respect the dignity of every human being? Right. It doesn't separate out exactly. human beings, whether you're Jewish, Muslim, whether right. you're gay or mm-hmm. straight. It does not make that separation, whether Absolutely. you're black or green. or mm-hmm. It does not make those separations. It says, as a Christian, will you honor and respect the dignity of all human beings. The second bullet point, I think, is the one that felt most prescient and prophetic (laughs) to me as he talked about the importance and and vitality and absolutely essential nature of having a free press press, in this country. Oh, my goodness. Oh, the fake news debates. It's, you know, it's such an interesting thing that we have within this age of information found a way to debilitate our press not by silencing them but by making everyone so loud that we can't hear truth oh well said it's unreal to me how the free press through so loud anarchy that no one can be heard yeah yeah banner it's and that's exactly like chatter it. yes exa- yeah banter yeah. <laughs> banter yeah, yeah it's just it's just chaos it, there's so much false information out there and i i am a vehement believer in multiple viewpoints and that memories are shaped by you know previous experiences and that nobody has the market cornered on truth but there is such a thing as blatant falsehood 
and now we have embraced blatant falsehood um, and alternative truth, which is a, a different yeah, different beast. And if our government controls mm-hmm. the press, then it loses its reason for being. Exactly, exactly. It's just, uh, there's so much that could be said on that. And then I think probably closest to my heart was his third bullet point. You know, as a, a public school advocate and activist um, and, and mother of two small children in, in Mississippi, um, the public schools are right there wow. on my radar as something that is deeply, deeply threatened, um, especially here in Jackson, where we've seen some interesting shenanigans of late. <laughs> well, yes, in fact, this just uh, uh, popped up mm-hmm. uh, on my email yesterday, actually. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, Dr. Brueggemann, you have nailed this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, yesterday, um, in my email, I, I'm on um, the email list for the Jackson Free Press. Here is the heading. Mississippi Bill would force teachers to recite the Ten Commandments every day. <laughs> well, I looked a little bit farther, and not only was this in the Jackson Free Press, mm-hmm. it showed up on Pathos. Mm-hmm. Or Pathos. Pathos, yeah. However you want to say it. Yeah. And Pathos is an online mm-hmm. international news service. Mm-hmm. And so this shows up in Pathos. And it says, I'm going to quote Pathos here A Mississippi legislator, Creedal Calhoun, has proposed a bill that would force teachers to recite the Ten Commandments at the beginning of every school day because what Mississippi needs in its public schools is more Jesus. First of all, I have so many thoughts about the fact that Jesus had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. He wasn't <laughs> born yet. But, <laughs> oh that's my neither here nor oh, there in the practicality of this. I mean, yeah. it just goes to show that we have lost track of the the role of public education. You know, I think about, um, you know, I wasn't born yet, but but in this bygone era of, you know, the space race, for example, there was such an emphasis placed on education because if we didn't educate our children, we wouldn't be a global competitor and we had to educate our population. And, and how have we shifted so far from that rhetoric of, of rising allowing all children to rise because we don't know where potential might be found in this beautiful American narrative to this cynical us and them dynamic where we don't care if we have the best economy in the world and the the most educated workforce. We just want my kids to be better than your kids and to, to literally be pitting neighbors against neighbors rather than seeing America as a team project. It's just such a such a shift that happened so quickly and all in the name of sort of family and virtue it's well and the sad one of the saddest parts about this for me is representative calhoun who is a democrat obviously doesn't understand the first amendment right and so uh that's that's really right. that's really sad it's, it's very disturbing for me um yeah. Absol- well absolutely and and the I mean, the role of religion in, in the public schools in Mississippi is is prominent. Um, ask any, you know, non-Christian uh, family that sends their kids to public schools. They every day encounter, you know, prayer at sporting events or in classrooms. Um, 
and not that that's a bad thing. I think that students should have the right to pray themselves, but they should teachers should not be the ones to to force that on their students who pray differently or don't pray at all. And and that's again, it's not our job to enforce a certain religion. Our job is to create open spaces so that all people of all faiths and no faith are welcome. Um, well, and we do have to keep in mind that um, we do we are a a democracy, mm-hmm. um, and that there needs to be one rule of law for all all the right. people. Right. And uh, so we can't necessarily interject right. uh, the Ten Commandments as a forced yeah. um, Absolutely. activity into a public school system. Right. All right, what about the next one? What was he talking about? Checks and balances. I mean, oh. he just kind of glossed over that. And I think that we kind of got in that um, with the, the talk of the independent judiciary and the way that, that there is such blurring between Congress, the executive branch, between the judicial branch. There's just... Um, the church's job is to be attentive to those uh, those unholy uh, relationships that maybe shouldn't shouldn't exist. Um, and then he talks about taxes as a democratic virtue, which I think probably needs to be said more loudly by more people. <laughs> I do too, because that's not popular, really, even among progressives. Often, um, well, and and the um, uh, secular democracy. Uh, because the church actually is supposed to benefit the common good. That right. means the good for all people. Um, in ancient Israel, uh, they were commanded to welcome the alien and the stranger. Uh, mm-hmm. They were commanded to act justly towards all people. So the church has an investment in investing mm-hmm. uh, and insisting, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. insisting uh, that its people respect the law mm-hmm. and the structure of a democracy. Um and paying taxes is part of that. Right. So it's like paying dues. Absolutely. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't hear people complaining too much, those that mm-hmm. uh, are, are able to, um, to participate in uh, mm-hmm. country clubs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hear them complaining about paying green fees. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so or, or club dues. Right. So it's part of a responsibility. If we're going to mm-hmm. live in a democracy mm-hmm. and have the benefits mm-hmm. that that provides, well, somebody has to pay for Absolutely. it. You know, and it is interesting living here in Jackson, um, unlike anywhere else I've ever lived before, this is a city that voted overwhelmingly to increase its own sales taxes to benefit our infrastructure a few years ago. A 1% sales tax was voted on overwhelmingly by the population because we said, we are tired of these potholes. We are. T- it snowed a couple of weeks ago here in Jackson, and everybody's water went out because our pipes are so right. poorly maintained because we don't have the money to do so. We have no tax base. We just we want had, our what, water 90, to work. We had 90 <laughs> water breaks. Yeah, uh, it was unreal. Schools canceled. Public schools didn't reopen. Offices were until closed. this week. And it, it was... Um, we want. We actually have gotten to the point where our citizens, our residents, want to pay higher taxes, and that is um, when you know a change needs to happen. A revolution is in the air <laughs> or in the water, as it may be. Uh, in the water is <laughs> good. Okay, let's well, let's move on. Yeah. What does he have to say next? All right. Let's give it a give it a listen. How about right. that? The third thing I have to say, and then I am done. Uh, well, I'll say that slowly because we got a lot of time to fill. <laughs> uh, 
there was there was during the Cold War a great deal of um, toing and froing about what the church ought to be doing in Eastern Europe, and uh, I found most compelling the sort of statement that said it is not the business of the church in those Eastern European countries to try to to try to get rid of communism because that wasn't going to happen that way. But it was the business of the church in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and so on to insist that communist governments must be faithful to their own commitments. And of course, by and large, the communist party in those countries reneged on its own social vision. Mutatis mutandis, I propose that it is the purpose of the, the, the public purpose of the church in the United States not to turn the United States into a Christian nation, but to insist that the United States should be faithful to the principles and practices of secular democracy. That means that, that means that there is a relationship between the church and secular democracy, but there is always a distinction and there is always a tension. Okay, I love how you ended it. There is always a distinction and always a tension. I love that use of that word tension. It's it's interesting now to listen back to these comments that he made in 2004. Um, and it brings up to me, you know, these are the, the seeds of germination in his thinking that led to his 2014 book, uh, Sabbath as Resistance, uh, that has been so, so prevalent in my own thinking in the last few years um, and in my own sermons and, and liturgies. And uh, I particularly love that, you know, he published this book, Sabbath as Resistance, in 2014, before resistance was the word, (laughs) was the buzzword. Uh, And he, you know, he really is one of these prophetic thinkers, not in the sense that he predicts the future, but that he has his finger so thoroughly on the pulse of what's happening culturally that he's able to feel where the culture is going before so many of us. Um, and in this book, Sabbath as Resistance, it's it's such a powerful piece. He's such a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He talks about how the ancient Israelites were obviously enslaved in the, in the, story, the narrative of the, the Hebrew people. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. And that central to that enslavement was Pharaoh's constant demand of work harder, produce more bricks, more bricks. And when they couldn't, Pharaoh would take away the straw or would take away more resources and say, and your quotas are even higher. And so within the narrative of the the Hebrew identity, the Israelite identity, they said, no, we will not function with commodity being our God. Our God is a God of rest so that we are well enough so that we are able to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, because our job is not to live as slaves to commodity, but our job is to serve a God of covenant and relationship who cares about us. And I love that idea that Sabbath is not just a practice that allows us to hang out and watch football on Sunday, and it's not just a code of conduct by which we can identify the us and them who works on Sunday and who doesn't, but it was actually an act of resistance and resisting power structures of domination and consumerism that, that 
the Hebrew people said, God does not call us to do this and we will not be a part of it. And Sabbath takes on such mo- so much more meaning um, and is such a resonant message for today that, that we live in this fast-paced, constant information doing world, the constant busyness, um, that there's almost a pride in how busy people can be. They find pride in it, but that the act of Sabbath, the act of caring for oneself and one's body, and the act of being faithful that creation has what it needs to take care of itself and not making ourselves God is an act of resistance to that dominant culture. And I love hearing, um, you know, as he speaks in this in this talk, that that tension, right? The tension of the religious institution to hold culture and power structures accountable. Um, I hear him saying that in these comments. And, and obviously, um, you know, he, he works on that in many different manifestations, Sabbath as resistance being one of them. But, but really, that's where I hear what, what he means, that it is our job as religious and faithful people to hold accountable our culture and our power structures and our governments when they grow toxic um, and dangerous for their own citizens. You are so articulate. I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear from him then because he's way more articulate. (laughs) All right. Let's hear what he has to say. We have one more clip that we want to uh, listen to and comment. And if you go back as far as Jonathan Edwards, who was the first great American theologian, you can see the tension between the practice of the church that Jonathan Edwards did and the government so that Jonathan Edwards and the Mathers and all those people regularly preached on stated occasions when government officials attended those sorts of things. But it was always clear that when they did that kind of preaching, it was the voice of the church, it was not the voice of the nation. And that practice that I think we need to recover in many modest local venues, that practice was the church calling the government to be faithful to its own democratic commitments. And I think that's the heritage that now needs to be recovered and practiced. And he mentions, uh, Dr. Brigham mentions Jonathan Edwards, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking Jonathan Edwards ought to be near and dear to your heart. (laughs) He was definitely very (laughs) prominent in the halls of of Yale Divinity School. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I was thinking, of course, the one book that I'm very familiar with is uh, Mm -hmm. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mm -hmm. Um, But being uh, a Yale Divinity School graduate, I thought, oh, Anne is going to be all over the fact that Brueggemann mentions Jonathan Edwards. But, um, uh, you know, his insistent... Uh, insistence Mm -hmm. um, about uh, this checks and balances Mm -hmm. system. You know, we we say that we uh, love democracy, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if if we really do. Mm -hmm. Do we really love democracy or do we really understand uh, the democracy and uh, Mm -hmm. a democracy and how that works? Uh, or do do we really love and not really know it? Do we really love an oligarchy, or do we really mm-hmm. love a monarchy, um, mm-hmm. where they get to control other people? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, early Egyptians mm-hmm. and Israelites that were held captive. Um, of course, I doubt that they really enjoyed being in no. captivity. Mm-hmm. 
But we have to have a rule of law mm -hmm. in order to be able to govern public behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it. again, I, we had some friends uh, who were in law school with my husband come visit um, who are also lawyers and political theorists, um, came to visit a couple of months ago. And, you know, these are some friends who who feel about democracy and our government very similar to the way that I feel about the church. I love the church, which is why it is so infuriating to me when it lets me down, which is why it is the institution that I rail against loudest and most. I believe so much that we have to have a community in order to follow Jesus that I really want the church to function at a level that, that we are called to. And I saw in these friends not just a frustration at the politics and not just uh, being outdone by the policies and being sad by the way the policies are impacting real lives, but a deep sorrow that mm. democracy might not recover. And they really do love this, this idea that we as a human body can live together in a structure that is self-made, that is based on the values and the lives of the people who live in it. And there is a deep sorrow at the sense that that has been undermined irreparably in recent years. And, and I think that as I think about the relationship between those two institutions, that government and the church, both of which I, I love as theoretical entities yeah. and find myself frustrated by in real life, um, I think that we really, they, there is that necessity of those balances, right? That we are called as the church to call out, to be prophetic, to, to say, this is not working for us. Um, this is not the government that, that we thought we were getting. This is not what has been promised to us. And I think that we are called to be truth tellers in this situation I think that um, it's it's one of our number one tasks right now is to say that. And it's interesting because, you know, when Brueggemann said these words, the religious narrative on the political stage had really been co-opted mm. by the far right, um, particularly the mainstream Republican Party. But the language of morals and religion we're starting to see is, in fact, being reclaimed by progressives. I think about Reverend William Barber and so many other voices people are starting to recognize mm -hmm. that the church will not stand for these horrible things being done in the name of our jesus well and i think people who embrace people of faith who mm -hmm. embrace any community mm -hmm. where that faith is so mm -hmm. sacred to them mm -hmm. uh it is the it's the mechanism by which they their moral center is right. guided and steered. I think, and, and me in particular, uh, I weep mm -hmm. when I see my community of faith mm -hmm. implode yeah. uh, upon itself, and then it ceases to function right. As, right. as it was intended. Uh, right. And I think that that's what we're seeing, you know, in so many, so many arenas, whether it's our local churches or national churches or, or our democracy right now. I think that there needs to be a great deal of truth telling and prophetic voice added to this conversation. Um, 
which is why I'm grateful to have the opportunity to raise up a voice as prophetic as Walter Brueggemann today. Yes, we thank Dr. Brueggemann. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that's it for today. (laughs) (laughs) But we really do. I mean, Dr. Brueggemann is one of my... uh, favorite Mm -hmm. and most impressive theologians Mm -hmm. of this time. So I want to thank our listening audience for joining us. Um, And if you'd like to hear more from Dr. Brueggemann, uh, along with others from from the seminar, The Prospect of a World Community of Religions, it is available for purchase on our website at www.faithandreason.org. F- A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N dot org. This program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. The end. I guess I'll go have a baby now and see everyone on the other side.